Hello and welcome to Held in Our Hearts Baby Loss Podcast. We are an Edinburgh-based charity providing baby loss counselling and support for bereaved families. We are committed to ensuring that no family has to face their journey of loss alone. And we wanted to create this podcast to reach out and share stories, encouraging greater connection and understanding. Join us on our journey as we speak to a wide variety of guest speakers who have been personally affected by baby loss or who have been moved by it. Hello and welcome to episode one of our podcast. My name's Angie and today I had the opportunity to speak with Nicola Welsh. Nicola is the Chief Executive Officer of Held in Her Heart and is herself a bereaved mum, having lost her precious son, Theo. She was previously a behavioural support teacher before she became involved with the charity as a volunteer befriending and also doing befriending training. We had a meaningful and heartfelt conversation about Nicola's story, her loss and what led her to Held in Her Hearts. Together we discussed the challenges she faced learning through pregnancy that her son had a condition called exomphalus and coping with the anxiety and uncertainty that brought. We spoke about her son's birth and then the difficult days and weeks that followed with her son in intensive care and then the heartbreaking day that she had to say her final goodbye to him. We then talked about why, what life looked like after Theo had died and the lack of bereavement care support when she went home and Nicola's desire for that basic human connection, something that still drives her today, desperate to speak to someone else who was also bereaved, someone that understood, something that I'm sure many of our listeners will relate to. We also covered Baby Loss Awareness Week, which supports families and aims to encourage greater understanding of what is still sadly a sensitive and often taboo subject. As always, if you or anyone you know has been affected by baby loss, please reach out to us at heldinherhearts.org.uk or email us at info at heldinherhearts.org.uk. And now, let me introduce the inspiring Nicola Welsh. So, welcome Nicola. We're delighted to have you here today. This isn't quite our usual work setting, is it? It feels a little bit strange. I know, I'm excited though. Our first podcast, that's really great and, and great to launch it on Baby Loss Awareness like, you know, the day of, um, that we, we start talking a bit more about that in society. So great opportunity. Uh, we're so pleased that you're able to chat to us today. So firstly, can you tell us a little bit about where your journey began? Yeah, so um, I suppose I have to go all the way back to my own son. It's why I'm here. It's why I do what I do. So um, yeah, in 2008, I was pregnant with my second baby and um, like many went for the scan um, but at the scan they identified that something was wrong with the baby's tummy that was how it was introduced they said their actual words were I can see the baby and I can see its tummy but it's not what I want to see and I think everybody has that moment which changes their journey their path you know for some families it's there's no heartbeat or or however the news comes it, it alters your path and for mine, that was it, was it went from a healthy pregnancy into you need to go up the stairs now. And, you know, you then go in the different route, you come out and you did go in the happy pregnant women, you come out a worried, anxious woman, I suppose. 
Um, we went to the, the Royal Infirmary, which is our local hospital, the next morning, thankfully straight away. So, you know, there was no lingering about too much. And they identified then that um, my son didn't know he was a boy at the time, but my baby had an exomphalus, which is a one in 5,000 condition where the tummy muscles don't close fully around the umbilical cord. And so what grows into that space is anything from stomach, liver or kidney. Um, and sadly, he had all of those in, in his exomphalus bubble, really. So on the, on the screen, it actually looked like that. It looked like a little bubble on his tummy. Um, and, and then, yeah, it was an anxious pregnancy. Um, you know, it, it, like many families that, that say that, like another pregnancy, it's never the same. And I think for me, that pregnancy changed that course because I could never be the bubbly pregnant woman. I was I was always carrying a, a worry about my son, always. Um, they, they just gave us loads of hope, I suppose, at the time. Did I think that he would die? Um, no, I had a fleeting thought once, I remember, because the neighbour next door was pregnant and due just long, not long after me. And I remember one day thinking, how awful that would be. Imagine her hanging a baby clothes and I didn't have my baby. So that was it. I quickly shut it down. I think anybody does. You, you can't look at that. You, your psyche won't allow you. It's at that point, his heart's beating and my heart's beating and that's all I can focus on. Just self-protection self really, isn't it? To protect you and to protect your baby. Yeah, definitely. I think it's primal, isn't it? I often talk about that, but it's primal to protect your young. It goes to animals, to humans. Um, I don't think there's many other more primal instincts in us than that, which is why it's utterly devastating when that doesn't go right and you and you feel like you've done something to not be able to protect that young, that baby. Um, and then I, I felt what I thought was contractions. I was only 31 weeks. I'd had a curry. My mum and dad had been up and I was definitely in my house. And um, they were saying, I think you've been painting too much. I think you've been doing too much today. But my first son had came early, um, six weeks early, and I recognised it. Um, and had they said that that would be a possibility that he that he might come come early? Did they did they advise that that might be the case? No, they didn't actually. Um, do you know? In hindsight, I always think it was because his exomphalus was so big. So on when he did arrive, he had a very very large exomphalus. You could see that on the screen, but you would never know until the baby's here. And they told us that. Um, and I think looking back, I feel like he was, maybe my body was triggered because it felt like he was full term, but also in another way, I, I think he knew he needed to come then. So what, what eventually evolved in the story was that, um, his exomphalus was sadly trying to close around his organs and, um, I think somebody maybe mentioned that to us, but I suppose there's no medical diff definiteness about would he have been a stillborn baby would he have died in utero I'm not sure I've never properly asked that but I will always interpret it that he needed to meet us like he needed to to, to meet us and and be loved and for me to be able to hold him and in some ways that's how I think we all interpret our own stories but um so yeah he we went and we had a natural labor um which was something really unique at the time. For example, babies were often sectioned. And again, I'm really grateful for the team allowing me to have that. We had music and I was terrified, don't get me wrong. I was utterly terrified, but 
um, the music I played, it was on repeat because I didn't know that I was going to have them. And so we had to go to the car and find a CD. It was like, do you know, it's like some opera piece. And actually, the, the funny thing is the origins of it is to do, it's called the Lament of My Son. And it's a mum son. It's the oddest thing because how would, I never knew the story of it. And actually, we played it at his funeral in the end. It was always connected. And I hear that now. It's very much him. But it was you know, there was a, a relaxedness and, you know, um, there was not many people in the room. It was very unmedical, I guess, in what I'm thinking. And, and that's nice to remember that you arrived. It's nice to know that you could have, have it as you wanted it as well with, with music, beautiful music, maybe on repeat, but things that you wanted it in, in the place at the time. Yeah, it felt like maybe some control and maybe not, I suppose, not traumatic. It wasn't traumatic and, and taken out of my from my hands really um so I got to see him when he was born just briefly as in I remember looking down and, and being scared I think I don't remember looking at everything I just looked at his wee face and he was just oh, so cute so so cute he had sort of really blonde hair and none of my babies are blonde hair that would be a surprise <laughs> uh, Hair and kind of curly. I had a little curl in the end. I really remember thinking, and I don't know over the years if I've really built that up. It's a funny thing, but um, but he was taken quickly away. He was just a really petite little perfect face. That's what I totally remember. Um, and they had to stabilise him. Um, and my husband got to to go with him. Um, and he had to go then to the sick kids. So he had to be quite quickly taken his exomphalus had ruptured during the birth so nothing dramatic I don't believe but um, he needed to be operated on and as fate would have it it was actually the surgeon that we'd met before who was on call that night so um, I, I loved that that it was like he the person that knew him best got to, to meet him early on and knew all about us and knew me and, and my husband um, and um, and so he, he, yeah he had his first operation when he was just hours old really that must have been I can't begin to imagine how difficult that must have been for you to to have him taken away to have that operation and then you're left presumably on the postnatal ward without your baby yeah oh it's awful because actually I had to go to theatre so in that like you know unfortunate episode next was I couldn't deliver my placenta um and so Gary had the choice well he didn't have a choice because I didn't give him a choice and so he had to follow the ambulance with Theo and I made him, and he's like, well, I can't leave you, you're going to theatre. And I was like, no, you absolutely can't leave me. Um, I was on my own, um, and because late at night, and it's Saturday night, I remember, because we were watching some, like, I think it was, like, X Factor on like, the telly at one point, because I like, kind of played in the background. Um, and then, but do you know what I do remember about that, was I went down to theatre, and it's all these moments, and anyone believe listening to this will totally get this. You remember all the things, like, from small to big to to smells, to sounds, and as, because it was really late going to theatre, it was quite relaxed because I think there wasn't many people around and the theatre had music playing and the guy who was looking, I don't even know what his name is, but he was like, he wasn't the anaesthetist, he was looking after the room almost and he was singing and had this music and there was a lady, again, I don't know her name, but she had a camera that she'd, well, my husband's camera, and she'd taken pictures and she just played them on a loop round to me, showing me my son, which, I mean, so I, I could, I detracted myself because obviously, I, you know, I was aware that this man had a glove up to his armpit, you know, and it's like, you know, like I, I did actually say to him at the, like, the time, like, are you going to pull out a cuddly toy or something? Because it was just one of those surreal moments in your life that you're like, 
oh my goodness, like what has just happened? And I think you're trying to lighten it. And I think you're trying to kind of soothe yourself almost. And then there was this lady who'd never met before um, showing me these pictures. And again, after after I came round from theatre, um, I was a bit sedated for it. But when I came round, I was really shaking. Like, I think that happens. Like I couldn't stop shaking. I couldn't hold my tea. <laughs> and she was sitting next to me and just giving me comfort. And gosh, you're so grateful for those people, aren't you? I think we hear that a lot, don't we, from, from families that we support. It's the smallest things, you know, someone holding your hand, someone making you a cup of tea that, that families really, really hold on to in those moments. Oh, totally. It's it's like human empathy and like that stripping everything away and just saying, you know, whether I understand or not, I, I'm giving you everything of me because if it was me in your shoes, I mean, that's really, that's what it is, isn't it? Pure empathy is giving a part of yourself and saying, I'm here and like yeah oh my goodness I can't ever put into words all those people that were with me and and helped um and then I, I didn't get to meet him my husband came back and said that he was he'd, he'd seen him and he was stable and they were just trying to control his temperature and it was really critical obviously um but the next day I did next day I, I met him um that was terrifying because was everybody was around his bed I, I in my head I think there was about 12 people I'm not sure if I many count but there was and, and I just broke down. I, was, I had his blanket and just stood, like, I wasn't allowed in the room at the time, but just stood watching him and with my blanket and my pyjamas because like, nobody told me to put clothes on, so I somehow put my pyjamas on to go from, like, one hospital to the next. And um, I remember this lovely nurse coming across and saying, oh, you see his mum? Oh, oh, he's perfect. Oh, my God, what a beautiful boy. And, oh, like, don't be worried. I'll tell you who they all are. And she, again, she told me all these people that were around his bed. And then... I was thinking they're all there for him. Wow, like all these people are going to make him better. Like they're all there to to support him, and that's 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 reassuring. Um, and then our journey again started. Um, was, there's always different sections. There's the before, and then there's the the journey of life, and then after, I guess. And so this was the, embarked on the next bit of his journey, I guess. And what did those weeks look like? Was it just in um, the hospital every day? Yeah, every day. Didn't miss a day. Um, Mostly together. I had a two-year-old at the time. Um, Lucas was just turning two. So he sometimes came and it was terrifying because he would just want to press all the buttons. And in intensive care, like high dependency, it's like, no, two-year-old and that do not go together. So I have to say that was pretty stressful. Bless my mum and dad. You could only have limited people. So Gary's family lived up north. So it was my mum and dad that were designated as visitors. And um, Lucas, um, so Lucas met him. He brought him a, a James train because Theo's middle name was James after my dad, um, which is, uh, just gives me loads of pride now. My dad's not alive now. And um, he was devastated when, he, when Theo died. And so it's lovely that he has his name, such an honour. So, yeah, um, Lucas, I've got pictures of him giving him this train. And... Um, and I, I, there's quite a few pictures with Lucas, and that's really important to me, I think, because he is 13 now, goodness, terrifying teenager, but um, he will always have them. And I, I do remember at the time recognising that, that he's part of this. It's not just us. This is his brother, and um, he's part of this journey. So we would visit every day, um, sometimes play music, read to him. Um, we used to read Guess How Much I Love You, the book which many people know. We used to read it all the time to him. It's a beautiful um, book, isn't it? Oh, it just says everything that you want to say, doesn't it? Um, Gary, I've got pictures of him reading it. You know, just nice stuff and, and getting to rub his feet. I couldn't hold him. So he was in an incubator. 
and um, at one point actually the he had three operations in his life but it meant that he had a um, as advanced as we are in medicine he basically had a washing line across the top of the incubator holding up this little silo with the contents of his stomach and a big sign saying do not lift because if you lifted it you would lift him i mean you couldn't believe that that was as, as bare as it got but um isn't it amazing like we can advance in technology so much but sometimes it's just like we need a piece of string we need it to go across the incubator and we need to strap it onto something and and just put a sign saying do not lift so um that was that was painful because oh my gosh you're just desperate to hold your baby especially when they're poorly and I was desperate to feed for him, so I'd sit next to him and try and express or try going to different rooms. And yeah, that whole time was hard, obviously, like just it was full of hope and then not not hope of not not that he was going to die or I, I didn't I didn't think about that. I know it sounds really strange, like he's in intensive care, you know, and his stomach's outside his body, he would be like, What were you doing? But you don't because it's all about hope. It's all about keeping him like that it's going to be okay you know it'll be okay and and actually sadly did end up having an operation at the end which reversed some of like the silo that he had around this and um for the first time then he looked like he had a baby with a wee blanket over him he looked it was almost the most hopeful period and actually then it was just days into that that my phone during the night as I always did always phoned every single night about two or three in the morning when I was up expressing to see how's he how's my boy and what's he been up to and um, the nurse was just like yeah he's just I'm just we're, we're just a bit concerned there's a bit of leaking um, from his wound and we, we would like to, to have a look at him in the morning um, and then that was it. He, um, Gary went through. I didn't because it had been Lucas's second birthday the day before, and I wanted to spend it with him. So, strangely, as a mum, for anybody who's got you know lots of children, regardless of they're sick or not, you are still pulled. You love them equally, and so Lucas still needed his mum. So I, I wanted to do art because he got an art table for his birthday, and um, I don't know if in hindsight I was just trying not to really focus on maybe what I was feeling. Gary always said he had a really bad feeling that day um, and that's why he had to go. So I met him through at the Sick Kids and um, and then we went up and, and got taken into that small room that probably many people recognise in any hospital, the small room with lots of people in it and lots of chairs and, and sad, sad faces and deep breaths and that awful feeling of something is going to be said and I don't want to hear it and um, <clears throat> yeah they, they then said that we have done everything medically we can for your son and um, he's going to die um, and to hear that when he's alive and he's got a beating heart and he's warm I, I, I got so 11 years I still don't I still cannot and, and don't pretend to find the words to explain to somebody how that feels. Um, it's, yeah, there isn't any words actually. Mm -hmm. It's the words that no parent ever, ever wants to hear, you know, the, the worst nightmare for, for anyone in that situation. Because like you said, you, you had hope all the way through. You didn't let your, you know, it might have been the prime minister, but you didn't let yourself believe that that was a possibility. And then to be told that that day, 
Yeah, just, um, yeah, it's beyond anyone's comprehension, isn't it? Because medicine should fix everything. I think that's what you believe. And, and certainly it's what my family believed, you know, it's like hard to tell the grandparents, hard to tell anybody that he was going to die. You know, I had my friend phone me back and say, I don't mean to phone you back, but like, sorry, do you mean he's going to die? Because I, I think I was just bumbling. There's nothing that they can do. There's nothing else that they can do. I think that was the only words, but it was like, something, you know, like, but what, what do you mean by that? Like, there must be, you know, he's in hospital. Um, and then we, we we spent the evening with him. And actually, to, to be honest, that's now gives me loads of comfort because I got to hold him. So for the first time, I got to hold my baby. And, um, oh, it's just magical. It's like, again, can't describe how special that was. But obviously with the heaviest, heaviest hearts, knowing it was going to be very time limited that we had with them. And so after that day, when you had to go home, you had to say goodbye to him. I can't even begin to imagine how difficult that was. When you went home, was there any support for you? No, unfortunately, that's where the care in the hospital has been amazing, but it was the coming home part that was really hard. Um, my GP came out to visit me and a community midwife came out, but of course it was at the end of that time of the month um, and um, the doctor had said I could go and get a double appointment and I did try that once, but it just didn't feel right to be sitting in a waiting room with people that were sick, coughing, ill. I wasn't ill, I was grieving, I, my baby had just died um, and I, I, felt, I felt really isolated and alone. Um, and I guess then I eventually did see a counsellor through NHS Lothian, which they, they no longer have, but I did, I kind of um, was able to articulate eventually that I needed some support. Um, and, um, and that really helped. But around about that time, I think what I was really desperate for was to meet somebody else who really understood. So I was given um, from the hospital a of some leaflets but one of them was um well the only place i could reach out to was the child death helpline at the time i don't know if they're still around but um it was just a card and i, I phoned them and uh, it was actually a lady who'd lost a baby older than theo and i came off the phone and it was just really heartbroken for her actually and gary was like you know this isn't going to work if you're going to feel sorry for the person you've just spoken to um i think it was too too early and then I spoke to somebody again and I, I do remember that being a bit difficult because she was saying, oh, I'm here till this time. And I felt like I was then maybe part of a process almost. It felt like I was fitting into a time schedule. And then I phoned once again and it was just purely to ask, um, will I ever be happy again? A heartbreaking question for, for anyone. I'm sure lots of people listening will, will relate to that feeling of, whether there's, there is any hope or happiness or being able to laugh or feel joy again. So knowing that there was only a phone line really for support, what, what did you find yourself doing being isolated at home? Um, I suppose trying to reach out to, I mean, I, would, I had amazing support from my family um, and friends, but again, it's, it's different to speaking to somebody. It's not like you can turn to somebody who's lost a parent who they would understand, you know, and so many people have had those experiences of loss. So I just felt really broken. And actually, I did have two further miscarriages that year. And so, I mean, I really was. I was, I was rock bottom, I have to say. Mm -hmm. 
And for those that are listening that maybe haven't experienced and aren't bereaved, uh, bereaved parents themselves, what is it that is so different about the death of, of your own, you know, in the wrong order? What, what is it that, that makes it so, so difficult for others to understand and to relate to? Yeah, I think there's many things that set it apart. So, you know, not that we try and hierarch grief. I don't think that's helpful. But I think what makes it different is the shared memories. So since my son's died, my mum and dad have sadly died. And um, as devastating as that is, and of course there's grief involved, I have a lifetime of memories with them. I can talk to people about them. I have photographs. People tell me, oh, you really like them, or the way you do that is very much like them, or I think that's their personality, which, of course, is just wonderful to hear. I have nobody in my life that can tell me anything about Theo. You know, there's nothing that I can then wait. Like, it's anchoring it down, isn't it, and saying he was here, he, he lived, he was my son, because I've got photographs and I have memories in my head but this is what makes it different for some families where there's a stillbirth, babies born early, then, you know, the, the moments that they have with their baby are all that they have. And, and some people might not have even seen them during the pregnancy. And so it's something that can be easily forgotten almost. And it's, I think it's parents, you know, roles to try and, um, I, I think, keep their memory alive which is very different um, from others. And, of course, you don't grow up ever expecting this to happen. It's not the natural order. Nobody ever speaks about, and what if your child dies, what would you do then? It's something that is not discussed. So when a family have to make these difficult decisions after a baby's died, it's something that they will never have contemplated in their life before. So that's what makes it very different. We will all know growing up that most likely – in a, you know, we hope that a family, a parent and grandparents will go before us. It's more of the natural accepted order. So when it does reverse itself, it's it's incredibly painful because it's the whole future that you're grieving. It's, it's what you wished for them and what they should be doing with you always, I think, until you want your own last breath. You know, it's like they should be here. They should be living life with you. So that's what makes it different, I think. So in your search, you talked about reaching out um, to, to get phone support. But you know, from what you've said, it's, it's really what you felt strongly was that need to, to physically connect with someone that understood. Did you find people in your local community that, that were able to help? Yeah, I did in the end, actually. So um, she's actually a mum of my eldest son and a friend at school. Um, and... Um, I, you know, I actually now can't think how I came across her. Had she heard about, were we at, oh, I know, we were, we were at classes together. We were, at, I think, breastfeeding classes together. And yes, I remember her talking about her baby before had died and I could not begin to contemplate it. That's right. And that, I think she reached out to me um, and she came round to my house and I remember being like a nodding dog. Everything she said, I just nodded and nodded and nodded because it was the first time that somebody absolutely understood where I was in my world. And we met many times. I'm very grateful for that um, support. And I think it's probably why I was passionate about what we do now because of that shared lived experience that only another breed parent could really understand some of the complexities to that type of loss. 
so from that amazing connection to be able to speak to someone who, who can share and understand how did you go from from being in that situation to, to where you are today tell us about about that jump what were you doing before you worked at held in our hearts so I was a teacher um, before, so I specialised in behaviour support and I was doing that, I'd done that for 20 years um, and loved my job, I have to say. Um, so, I, do you know, in some ways I always think it was Oscar, my, my baby that came after Theo, so some people got a rainbow baby, but that next baby, obviously difficult pregnancy, anxious, but he arrived and almost instantaneously, not only did I get so much comfort from him, like as in, like, I mean, he was never Theo, and he could never replace Theo, and he was never to do that. But he brought a baby back in my arms and gave me an awful lot of hope about life again. Um, and I very quickly then turned to. I feel stronger and I want to do something to make sure nobody is on their own. That was, and it was really inspired by this place of, okay, I feel more secure now and I'm going to do everything in my power. And it started with a huge big piece of paper, which I still got, a big rolled up sheet of paper about how I was going to do it. And it had who I was going to talk to, um, who I was going to research, how I was going to do it. I love looking at it sometimes because it's like, wow. I mean, it was huge because it just, it was like brainstorm because as, as a teacher, you know, it's like, okay, my mind's map of how I was going to do it. And in that place, I stumbled across whilst going, who's out there? What are the other charities? Now, it, it sounds weird to say that because why did I not do that at the time? But that always sticks in my head because I think it's for somebody to find things themselves when they're grieving. Grief is foggy. It's heavy. It's it's complicated. You, you can't you don't have that clarity. So with the clarity came, I could then research and I stumbled across what was Sans Lothians at the time and um, emailed them saying, I noticed that you have support. I'd really like to hear more about it. And at the same time, I just had um, an agreement from the hospital to meet, to set up a working group within um, St. John's local hospital. Um, and it, it evolved from there. It kind of snowballed. I then became a volunteer. I trained to do befriending and I was driving to my schools and then in my lunch hour I'd be sitting like replying to the parents and um, I, I mean it just became that I was as equally passionate my other two days when I didn't work I was doing everything to do with the charity and I do you know it was like this purpose it, it was like I it made sense it's like this is what I need to do um, and I was very fortunate that at the end of 2014, um, the previous chief um, exec was retiring and I was um, approached to see if I would consider taking the charity on, which was pretty terrifying when I'd come from teaching, no management experience. But I, what I eventually said to family and friends was better to give it a shot and me fail than to not do it at all. Um, that was my philosophy, I think, was right, you, you, you believe in the bereavement, you know this inside out, you, you breathe it. So what can go wrong? If I know that, surely everything else can be built around it. It's like a, an internal compass, really, that, that fire and that drive to, to, from your experience for someone else and every other family not to have that same experience. So how did it feel, day one, complete change in career, 
heading up the charity? What did that first day or first week look like? So terrifying, absolutely terrifying. No kidding. Drove up to where we are now, same building. And you know, one of my bereaved mums I'd supported met me there and she had a card and flowers, which still, again, all these people, you know, when you're just like, oh, she met me there. And that, you know, just made me go, okay. It was a week after my dad's funeral, sadly. So there was more grief around for me, but I was like, right, he knew about this job. He knew I wanted to do it. Sat with a laptop. And to be honest, not much more. Um, we had two counsellors and an office manager and me. That was it. Um, and it was a bit like, how do we do this? But we will, we'll do it. And it's just, I mean, it's, you know, um, our fundraising manager often talks about it. it's like, you know, teaspoons of sugar and until you can get a, a snowball and then you can roll the snowball and it gathers from into a minute. So it's felt like it was shoveling with a teaspoon for an awful long time, let me tell you. But um building up relationships and connections and, um, and and get to where we are now. So can you tell us about today um, at Thousand Hearts, what was your vision for, for the charity when you came on board? Um, I think it's the same vision as I have now. It's um, I'm incredibly passionate that no one has to do it on their own. Um, as a charity, we're looking to, um, to make changes so that families don't go home ever feeling on their own. Um, I, I believe that somebody with, you know, a, you lose a limb, you would go home and have support. And many other charities do have mandatory support. I'd really love to see that so that it, it still relies just now on families having to look for the support. They might get given information, but I'd really like to think that we get to a point one day where, I mean, bereavement care is always improving. You know, we hear that all the time. If we look back 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, I mean, it changes all the time. And for the good. I still think we've got a long way to go. I think there's, um, you know, for me, it's the understanding, I think, of the trauma that's involved um, in losing a baby, that complexity. It's why we offer um, our counselling and it's why we offer long-term counselling because, you know, through lots of research and, and knowing families for a long time, we understand um, how that can impact. And I think my vision remains the same as one of um, we will fit around the families. Grief is different for everybody. And so therefore, the bereavement care should be different to accommodate their needs at any point in their journey. So we might do a light touch at the beginning and we could hear from them not until maybe six months or a year later. It might be we support them weekly. It may be that they go on to have counselling because their grief feels a bit more stuck or complex. But as a charity, we reverse. We don't have a system and they fit into we reverse our model inside out and we build around them. There is no such thing as this is how we do it. It's we will grow and evolve with the families. And the most important thing is that they know at any point that they're not on their own. Absolutely. And I think that is absolutely at the centre of Baby Loss Awareness Week, which is all around reducing isolation. It's something that we, we know and we hear from families all the time about, you know, that, that earth-shattering news when they, when they hear the news that their baby has died, overwhelming isolation and loneliness. But here we are today, 2020, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, and we know from the families that support the increase and severity of the isolation through lockdown and the increased restrictions, partners not being able to support in the way that they would, families not being able to give the support that they need. So today is Baby Loss Awareness Week. It's the first day. It runs from the 9th to the 15th of October. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about the history of that and our involvement with it and why it's such an important week. Yeah, and so <clears throat> the history of Baby Loss Awareness Week, I think, is um, an opportunity to have the bereaved parents' voices heard. 
So you know, many other causes will have the a month of the year where it's about that. And I, and I think it raises that profile and voice. It, it's a subject nobody really wants to speak about. I mean, nobody wants to speak about death. I mean, goodness me, in COVID time, so many families are, are experiencing death. And yet we still know that it's the most difficult topic. I do believe that we're a death-denying country. But you, you bring in the baby dying, and, I mean, that's a different level all again because, you know, that's not something somebody can relate to easily, but it's the more, it's more so important, and that's why we do have Baby Loss Awareness Week. So um, we're part of an alliance um, where there's, you know, many, many charities involved, and collectively it's about that voice all gathering together and making sure that families feel that they can join in on our social media. is incredibly crowded at the moment, Um but it's a time to you know break that life is okay life is perfect for everybody because we know that it's very definitely not um and it it is a time to say you know i'm here my baby was part of my life is part of my life he or she counted my son and daughter is you know somebody i'm proud of and love and they can say their name and most importantly i think we're going to be sharing stories and this podcast along with other um, family stories over the week through film um, and on social media and and reaching out and saying you know we're here we we remember with you and of course as you've just touched on that accumulates with wave of light on the 17th uh, the 15th sorry which is a a lovely opportunity for people to to light a candle at seven o'clock together and and it feels like there's a unity um around that thank you Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Nicola. We're so grateful for your time and for sharing about your wonderful son, Theo. Um, I'm sure that that hearing his story will have touched a lot of people listening today. So I have just one more question for you today, something that we ask all our guests on our podcast, and that is, um, can you share something um, that you're grateful for? It might be today or it might just be in general, but if you could share that with us. Can I do two things? Of course. So I'm grateful for my son. I'm grateful for all my boys, but I am grateful every day that Theo chose me as his mum. I I can't think of anything I'm more grateful for. He has taught me so much and I live with him. He's me and I am him and I wouldn't be doing this today. I wouldn't be talking to you today if it wasn't for him. And so he has to have the most gratitude. The next thing I'm grateful for is anybody along the way who helps me on my journey. Um, my team that I work with, I'm grateful every day for having such a compassionate and flexible team. Um, I can hear my dog in the background. Um, and I'm also really grateful for um, all the professionals and everybody else who tries to get the charity to where we want to go and believes in what we're doing and believes in our vision. So that's a great question. Thanks for that. Thank you. And thank you for sharing that with us as well. And thank you for your time today. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Nicola. I hope you found that useful and the areas you explored were meaningful and helpful to you. I also hope that Nicola's story has helped you feel more connected. And if you are a bereaved parent listening, please know that you do not have to face this alone. As always, please reach out or follow us on our website, heldinourhearts.org.uk, or you can email us on info at heldinourhearts.org.uk if you need support. You can also find us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter with the handle of Held in Our Hearts and on Facebook 
Baby Loss Counselling and Support. Please remember also this week is Baby Loss Awareness Week, so support us by getting involved and sharing on the hashtag BLAW2020. We have a special Wave of Light event at 7pm on the 15th of October if you want to join us. Details are on our Facebook page and we also have personalised images that we can make for you. Again, details on our Facebook page. Thank you so much and we hope you'll join us next time. Thank you.